You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, we're going to be biting off a big chunk of Scripture today, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Uh, but we're going to bite it off in chunks, so uh, that'll help out a little bit. But Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, and y'all let me slip a couple weeks ago. Nobody reminded me, so you got to double loud it today, okay? Um, we are reading, studying Hebrews because we want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. We want to serve Jesus greater. In two decades plus of ministry... Uh, I have heard this phrase quite often from a lot of people. Why didn't I know that? Why didn't I know that? And, and that doesn't come typically from people outside of the church. It comes from people who've been within local church communities. I'll give you a couple of examples. Christmas is um, drawing near. Some of you are very excited about that. Some of you are going, oh my goodness, it was just Valentine's Day. But Christmas is drawing near and, and you're going to get your decorations out here in a few months or maybe a few weeks. And uh, you're going to bring your nativity scene out and you're going to put those three little wise men in your nativity scene in the manger. And yet the Bible tells us that there were three gifts, but it doesn't tell us the number of wise men or kings that came. We assume there were three, perhaps there were more. It also tells us that they didn't most likely visit the baby Jesus in the manger. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 9, after they received their their orders from Herod, it says the star they had seen when it rose that signified his birth went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And Matthew 1.11 tells us they went into the house to worship the baby Jesus or the child infant Jesus, not into a manger. Why didn't I know that? Now, I'm not suggesting that this week or the weeks to come, you need to build a separate addition on your manger scene of a house for the child Jesus to live in and but it's un- it, we should understand, we should think about things biblically that we say are truth. I'll give you a, a more um, deeper one, perhaps. Some of you have grown up in various denominations and traditions that say women are to be subservient, quiet, not in leadership, just have their role and just stay in it. And yet in Romans 16.1, Paul writes to the Roman church about Phoebe, who's going to be visiting them. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at King Crea, which was a, a facility or a city just east of Corinth. And the word servant translated there is the same Greek word that's translated deacon in 1 Timothy 3 where we draw our qualifications for church leadership. Understand that English translators of the Bible choose the way they often interpret or translate a Greek word based upon their own personal leanings. Now, I'm not suggesting from this that we just do away with what we thought about deacon ministry or who should serve or whatever else, but it ought to give us pause to say, how is the same Paul who to the church of Corinth, for example, says a woman should learn quietly in submission, bestow the same, the same word or the same title 
on another lady just a few miles east of Corinth. It should cause us to dig. It should cause us to discuss. It should cause us to think about what the Bible says and what our takeaways are of that. So the point of those examples and others like them is this. When we hear that, when we're exposed to that, quite often as adults who've grown up hearing different things, oftentimes we have a little bit of issues, some confusion, maybe even some distrust or anger. Why didn't I know this? I use these examples that we can put ourselves in the place of these Hebrew Jewish Christians in this letter who now for nine chapters have had the author continually say this was what was wrong with the way you grew up. This is what was wrong with the way you worship. This is, this is why it was insufficient. This is why it was incomplete. This is why you need Jesus. Because if we can put ourselves in their position, if we can put ourselves in their understanding, even in their understanding perhaps that they were a little frustrated at this author of Hebrews for writing what he was writing, then we begin to understand what he writes and how it compares and means and applies to us. So our first point today, we're going to go by points and sections of Scripture, not through the whole thing at a time. Our first point today there in your bulletin is this. Imperfect religion never brings completion. Imperfect religion never brings completion. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 with me, and then we'll jump down and read verse 11 as well. He writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect, complete, those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Imperfect religion never brings completion. Now, the Bible speaks of religion in both good and bad ways. Just a few pages to the right in the letter of James, James 1, verses 26 and 27, this is what James writes. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle or hold his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So, bad religion. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, that is to keep oneself clean in pursuing the holiness of God. In Colossians chapter 3, this is the way that Paul writes it. He's been dealing from verses 16 on in Colossians chapter 2, excuse me. He's been dealing from verses 16 on about no one passing judgment on you for earthly things and, and no one imposing human re- regulations on you like self, uh, uh, don't, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And he says this as he sums this up in verse 23 in Colossians 2. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, in stopping sin. 
They look good on the outside, but they're of no value in pursuing holiness. And so there's good religion. James describes that good religion as an example of caring for widows and orphans and pursuing holiness, remaining unstained. And the key to good religion is the focus of love, devotion, and, acti- and worship and activity is the focus is on God. Bad religion puts the focus back on us. Bad religion puts the focus on the worshiper, on the self. That's why Paul says those things are good for self-made religion, but they're of no value in stopping sin. And so imperfect religion never brings completion. Now, the reality of it is, uh, this is not a new idea in the Bible, that religion from the Old Covenant, meaning the religious system that did not include a life or a heart change, was imperfect. I'm going to read you three examples today. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So he says, you're not impressed by my religious activity because that doesn't bring completion. But, but God, you will not despise my broken my, my contrite, my confessing heart. In Isaiah chapter 1, as the, the judgment is being laid forth from God to Isaiah, in chapter 1, uh, verses 11, and thir- 11 through 13, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, When you come to appear before me, and this is in worship, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moon, the Sabbath, the calling of convocations, meaning the the calling of special times of, of worship and prayer. He says, I cannot endure iniquity, sin, and solemn assembly. Because they would call these special times, they would call these special moments, but their lives weren't exhibiting any change at all. Even Amos, we studied the the prophet Amos on Sunday nights some time ago, and he says this, beginning in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 5, I hate, this is the word of the Lord, I hate, I despise your feast, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And these are harsh, harsh words from the Lord. And to to just make them very simple for us to understand, these are words from the Lord saying, imperfect religion, religious activity, Religious tradition, religious heritage that does not transform you by virtue of a new heart and a new life, that does not get displayed in your life by virtue of you following me, honoring me, pursuing holiness with me, that religion I despise. That religion brings no completion. And the the author here in Hebrews tells us that. Look again there at at the end of verse 1. He said, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered, make perfect, make complete those who draw near. 
Not only that, he says there in verse 2, he said, if that were the case, they would have ceased to have been offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness or awareness of their sins. He says it doesn't work that way. The old covenant with its religious system, the old covenant with its sacrificial system, it, it did not produce a perfect a perfection. It did not produce completeness. It did not produce a wholeness. This word perfect in this setting has been used now five times in this letter up to this point. It's safe to say the author here is pounding this point home. That what we often think makes us good really does nothing for us. What we often think makes us Righteous, holy, God's children does nothing for us in terms of completion. It, it brings relief that's temporary. I mean, let's just be honest. There are people that come to church on some Sunday mornings and they go, all right, I came to church this Sunday. I'm, I'm good. Got a little relief there. But it never brings peace. It never brings peace. Years ago, before everything went digital, Schools used to mail out what they called progress reports. Halfway in between your six weeks or, or nine weeks segment, or whatever the case was. And, and I know in my schools growing up, they did not require parents to sign those and acknowledge those and return them back to the school. So I got pretty adept, <clears throat> confession, at knowing when the progress reports were going out and knowing what the envelope looked like that held the progress reports, and knowing when we got home that afternoon, I'll go get the mail. Oh, hmm. Here's the mail. Because I knew in some of my academic studies at different times I was in trouble. Now that brought me temporary relief, but it didn't bring me any peace. Because I knew if I didn't get my act together the second part of that six weeks or that nine weeks, I was going to get found out. Sometimes our religious things that we do bring us some temporary relief, but without Jesus, they never bring us any peace. Because our consciousness, the author says in Hebrews chapter 10, our consciousness, our awareness of our sinful condition can never be cleansed. Consciousness is connected to the word conscience, which is in Hebrews 9, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 14. He uses those, that word there. And the consciousness is the awareness that the conscience is the key witness either for or against us. Paul uses it in this way in Acts 23, verse 1. Before the ruling religious council, he begins his defense and he says this, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, if you know the life of Paul, who used to be called Saul, to hear that statement, to hear that he made that statement might shock you. Because to be certain, there's nothing about the, the fullness of Paul's life that should have allowed him to live in good conscience before the Lord. Acts tells us that he stood over giving approval to the stoning of Stephen to death. And it's quite 
it's not a, not a leap for us to say if he approved over one, he probably approved over many. So how does Paul, with that past, how does Paul, with all that religious upbringing, how does Paul able to say before a group of people, I have lived all of my days before God with a good conscience. It's only because of Jesus. It's not because of any of his religious stuff. It's not because of his heritage, his tradition. It's, it's because Jesus has made him a new person. And now his consciousness or his awareness of his conscience does not testify against him. Upon all that, he reminds us there in Hebrews 10, 3 again. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. And again, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Every sacrifice, each and every sacrifice, was a reminder not only of the incompleteness of that religion and those religious activities, but was a reminder of their sin. It's mind-boggling to consider in the life of a Jewish person who lived to be, let's say, 80. It's mind-boggling to try to begin to think how many animals were killed due to their sin. I'm not just talking about Day of Atonement offerings. I'm talking about daily offerings that they had to bring. It, it, it's so mind-boggling that most scholars don't even attempt to try to put a number to it. But beyond all that, imagine that every time you go to the temple, you offer up a sacrifice or you yield a sacrifice to the priest to offer it before you. And while you walk away with temporary relief, you also walk away with, oh, well, I'm just good until the next one. No peace. No completion. No perfection. The rebuttal to this oftentimes is, but God instituted those sacrifices. So God's truly to blame with that. No, he's not, because the sacrificial system acknowledged by God, developed, instituted by God, was never designed to take away sin. It was designed, if you want to use it in this terminology, as one big object lesson to show the serious nature of sin, to show that sin required death, and to demonstrate the love of God for his people. So how does the killing of all these animals, the sacrifice of all these animals, demonstrate the love of God for his people? It demonstrates his love because he didn't demand their death. It demonstrates his love because he gave them an opportunity, gave them something else to die on their behalf for the forgiveness of their sins. But again, imperfect religion never brings that completion. So, then point two, relationship with Jesus is our only hope. Imperfect religion never brings completion. Relationship with Jesus is our only hope. Obi-Wan is not our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Look at, look at verses 10, uh, 5 through 10 with me, for you, if you will. Right after saying it's impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sins, the author says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I titled this message, God's Will and Christ's Work, because they are in tandem here. That the will of God was that you and I and everyone who would ever belong to Him through faith and trust in Jesus Christ would be made holy. The will of God is that you would be made clean. The will of God is that we would be pursuing holiness. And not only that we would pursue it, but even in those moments where we fail to take hold of it, that we would have peace. Not just a little relief that's temporary, but peace that's complete. And so the relationship with Jesus is our only hope to this. Why why do I use the word relationship? Well, because the idea of relationship is woven all the way through Scripture. In the New Testament, it uses the word reconciliation. In Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians 5, Paul discusses this renewed state that we're in with God through Jesus Christ. That once we were enemies, but now we're his sons and daughters. That once we had no God, but now he is our God. And he discusses that renewed state and he calls it the noun reconciliation. There has been reconciliation between God and man through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1, Paul then uses the verb form of that, that we have been reconciled or Christ has reconciled us to describe the renewing act of reconciliation and restoring relationship. You cannot reconcile one thing to another or one person to another without there being a foundational relationship. And our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with God was marred, foundationally crumbled because of our sin. And so Jesus brings us into relationship with him, with God, through the work that he's done. And it's the will of God and it's the obedience of God that are in tandem here or to continue on in the same vein that are in relationship. That the will of God that we would be holy And the work of Christ and his obedience are in relationship with one another. See, the issue for Hebrew Christians of the or Hebrew Jewish Christians of the day, the issue for us of the day, the issue is that the religious stuff that we do doesn't make us complete. Now, I'm not standing here today to discount all the religious stuff that we do. We're going to be preaching in a couple weeks, or I'm going to be preaching, you're going to be listening, um, in a couple weeks on the importance of the local church. I'm not telling you today that you don't need to come to church. I'm not telling you today you don't need to serve. I'm not telling you today you don't need to be in Bible study. I'm not telling you any of that. What I'm telling you is none of that by itself brings any completion. None of that by itself brings any peace. The only relationship that's forged with Jesus and to God brings us any of that peace. And the issue for them was that the old covenant, the old sacrificial system couldn't do it. The issue for us is the same. You might be saying, well, no, wait a second. We don't do all that sacrificial stuff. Like, how are we compared to that? There are times, there are times 
when something that we consider part of our religious system doesn't go the way we thought it should or gets changed, and we lose our minds. You don't believe me? Come to the next deacon's meeting after somebody accidentally doesn't serve Welch's grape juice and hear how many comments they got. Y'all think I'm joking. There are things that happen in our religious system sometimes that, that don't happen the way we're used to or they get changed up or, or whatever the case may be and, and we get all in a tizzy because we're making it about us. We're making it about our preferences and what gets us through that moment, whatever that moment was. And the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ is not about us. It's about Him. And it's about His love for us and His dedication and His devotion to us and the coming of the promised Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word and how it changes us and how it makes us His sons and His daughters and it changes us forever. When we let the, the little religious things of our day throw us in such a tailspin, we're no different than the Hebrew Jewish Christians who were going, oh, but, but we, we, can't, we can't do things any different. This is not what God had designed for us. Look at Hebrews 10, 12 through 18 as we close up. He precedes it there in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ, oh, what a glorious three-word phrase. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm going to stop there for just a moment before we look at the last ones. But when Christ, when he offered the sacrifice, when he came and offered himself, when he did that, he has made us both perfect eternally and he is making us perfect as we go through our lives. Look there again at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected, made complete, given complete peace for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is that idea that after we are justified, we are declared not guilty by the work of the cross. Sanctification is that idea that now in Christ we are seen as fully perfect, even though on most days we're far from it. But it has a, a, has a secondary piece to it that so long as we are living on this earth and so long as we have not been yet caught up to the heavens or Christ has not returned, even though we are eternally perfect by Christ's blood, by his death, and then given new life by his resurrection, we are to be continuing to be sanctified, meaning we are continuing to pursue the holiness of God through Jesus Christ and the power and the presence of the Spirit. Sanctification in the New Testament, the parallel for it in the Old Testament is the word consecration. 
And in the consecration, in Exodus 29, for example, you see what's called the consecration of the priests. The priests are chosen, they're set apart for a work for God, the dedicated work for God, and they're consecrated, they're clean. Leviticus 8 talks about the consecration that occurred within the whole tabernacle, the, the tent itself, and everything that was being used in the religious system, in the religious offerings. It was consecrated. It was set apart. The initial consecration, consecration was the choosing of the priests and those things that were being used. They were then anointed and cleansed and sanctified and made holy. And then they never served another purpose outside of that purpose for their lives. Whether they be a person who is serving as a priest or a candelabra who is lighting the way. You and I have been chosen in Christ through our faith and trust in him. And we've been made clean. And the second part of then of our salvation becomes that you and I then not only are clean, but are continually being cleansed, sanctified, set apart for the work and the purpose of the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you have to be a pre preacher. Doesn't mean you have to be a worship leader. Doesn't mean you have to be a Sunday school teacher. It means that if you're a lawyer, that you're a teacher, that you're a stay-at-home mom, that you pump gas for a living, that you flip burgers at McDonald's, it means that your life has now been set apart for a divine purpose, and that divine purpose is that it is no longer to be used for yourself and no longer to be used for the ways of this world, but it's to be used for the purpose of God's kingdom and His holy great name. You've been sanctified, you've been set apart, you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And you've been called to that purpose. And the beauty of it is, again, verses 12 and 14. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By single offering. That means me, you, any who are in Christ, any who long to be in Christ, no longer have to worry about coming and repeatedly offering something. Complete to continually come and offer some kind of religious work of devotion or action. That he has done this. Now, when we share our faith... We use phrases like this sometimes. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe this truth that, that Jesus loves you and died for you and wants to give you new life? And, and we use that type of terminology. I would say to the church, to those who are all brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to ask ourselves a very similar question. Do you believe that by a single offering Christ has done this? Because if you don't really believe that, what you'll catch yourself in is a Christian cycle of continually trying to measure up to God. A Christian cycle of continually thinking, well, if I just give a little bit more, if I, my attendance is a little bit greater, if I, if I serve, maybe, maybe this year instead of doing um, juice and cookies at VBS, maybe I'll do rec. That we get caught in this continuous cycle of thinking, if I just do something else to make God aware of me, happy with me, uh, then, then that'll work. But the scripture doesn't allow us that. Because it doesn't come from our efforts. It has come because of a single offering. The offering, the sacrifice of Lord Jesus Himself. And when faith and trust meet that, 
You are cleansed. You are being cleansed. And you are called according to his purpose. People sometimes say, well, then how do I know? How do I know this is working out in my life? Well, we look at the work of the Spirit, verse 15 through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you have said, I believe that Jesus has forgiven all of my sins, then what you have said is, there no longer are any offerings even I can bring to atone for my sins. I had a conversation with a guy a few weeks ago that gave me kind of the standard. I know I need to be in church more. I said, well, we'd love to have you. We'd love for you to be a part of our, of our body and our, our faith community. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I got a lot to atone for. And I, and I thought and I said, then you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't say you and I have a lot to atone for. The gospel says it's been atoned for you. That Jesus, by one sacrifice has done everything you and I need and it's testified by the Spirit in our lives. Paul describes it in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 that we're sealed with the Spirit. It's testified by the Spirit in our lives that our faith and trust in Christ has yielded us this perfection. Let me tell you what the Spirit won't do. I'm going to ask the praise team to go on and make their way up here. We know what the Spirit will do in terms of sanctification and consecration. In terms of how He lets us know that we are God's and He is our God and we have been saved and cleansed and sanctified. Let me tell you what the Spirit won't do. What He won't do in our sanctification process is say to us, you know what, it's okay just to keep struggling there. It's okay just to keep to keep hanging out in that sin. It's paid for. That's not sanctification. That's not pursuing holiness. And see, the Bible says we pursue it. You know why? Because in this world, we're being pursued by everything else. Everything else in this world is set against you and me. Everything else in this world is set to, have, to pursue us, to get us to pursue it. Jesus gives us one singular purpose, to pursue him. And so if you think being made whole and perfect and cleansed and sanctified means that the Holy Spirit's going to say, it's all right, then understand that Jesus did not condemn the woman in adultery, but then he said to her, go and sin no more. Now praise be to God for his grace and forgiveness that when we do mess up, it's taken care of but it's not a license to continually mess up. It's not a license to continually choose. It's not a license to continually say, I'm good to go, I don't need to pursue holiness. He has perfected those who have been and are being sanctified. 
when we pursue him, not by religious works, not by religious heritage, not by religious tradition, but by falling deeper and deeper into love and obedience with him. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.